A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him, clo I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The word of the Lord. Daniel eight fifteen to 27. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. 
and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The word of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's uh, pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, uh, we come to you today desiring to hear you speak. Long, long ago, a man called Daniel heard your voice, and your voice is sometimes a strange voice to our ears, but it is a voice we want to hear. So will you, by your Holy Spirit, do whatever is necessary in us to grant us to hear you clearly, rightly? And will you transform us in the particular way that we need so that we might see Jesus and be found in him and rest in him and find our great hope in him? Pray this in his name. Amen. All right, everyone, take a seat. Um, now, here's the deal. We are continuing our series in the book of Daniel. The first part of the book of Daniel is going to be more familiar to a lot of us. There's stories like Daniel in the lion's den and things like that. Um, and then there's the second part of Daniel, which is different. Um, oh, boy. Uh, so this is the part of Daniel where Daniel has some pretty trippy visions. Um, yeah, I mean, and you, it, were, did you see that in the reading we just had? There, um, the two readings we just had, there was really just one reading. We just decided to, to uh, break it up. But you'll want to keep that in front of you. Um, do you remember the vision that, that Daniel has? There's a, there's a ram, and then there's a goat, and the ram and the goat, they don't like each other. They, there's a big old fight, and then there's all these horns coming out of, and one of the horns is really, really brutal, and what in the world? There's an overwhelmed prophet at the end. And the overwhelmed prophet at the end kind of uh, encourages me just a little bit, because this is a formidable reading, and we all need to buckle up. But this reading, Emmanuel, has a great gift to give us. And here's the gift. For the last couple thousand years, this reading, as bizarre as it is at first, and actually it stays bizarre, it doesn't become unbizarre even if you read it a lot of times, as bizarre as it is, this reading for the last couple thousand years has been calling God's people 
to live lives of hope in the midst of overwhelmingly frightening circumstances. This reading calls us to cultivate the art of hope in a terribly frightening world. And it's hard for me to imagine too many things that we need more than to learn the art of hope. Um, here at Emmanuel, we like to say that we, uh, this church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it, one of the most important things, if you want to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ well, you need to learn something about the unique kind of hope that Jesus gives that you're not going to find anywhere else. If we're going to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ, our hope has to be rooted in Jesus and not in the circumstances that surround us. And very often, when you look at the church and, the, and when you find that the church, the followers of Jesus, begin to distort the beauty of Jesus Christ, when our corruptions and our sins begin to uh, uh, obscure who Jesus is, very often the, un, the uh, undiagnosed root of that disfiguring and that corruption within the church is so often a failure of hope. And Clint was pointing out earlier that we are in, we're living through a moment where we, I think many of us, feel the weight of any number of narratives around us, whether they be shootings in Buffalo or wars in Eastern Europe, and many, many other narratives that weigh upon our hearts and weigh upon our souls. And here in the midst of this moment, we need to learn to be people whose hope is rooted in something deeper and more foundational than the frightening circumstances around us. And that's what this reading teaches us how to do. But the thing is, if we're going to learn the lessons of this reading, everybody take a deep breath. Because we're going to have to wade into the scary. Because this reading is scary. And it's probably more frightening than it seems at first glance. So what we're going to do is we're going to go down deep into the scary. And when, we're, when we've wrestled and sat with the frightening for a little bit, then we're going to be able to see that there's hope there that maybe at first you can't see. And it's hope that will lead us through. Ready? Whether you're not or whether you are or not, here we go. Okay, uh, first of all, we're going to look at, at some of the scary bits. Um, and uh, remember, as we go into this, that this is apocalyptic literature. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you were here last week, uh, Leel McMahon, who is a guest uh, preacher, he explained that apocalyptic literature is a genre in the Bible that uses really vivid imagery to fire our imaginations and unveil, that's what, what the word apocalypse means, unveil truths that would be otherwise hidden. And what that, one of the things that that means is that uh, the, the reading speaks through its symbols. Remember also who the speaker is in this reading. It's Daniel. Uh, the Daniel, uh, the guy that got this vision, lived about 550 years before Jesus. Uh, he was uh, Jewish and he was working for the Babylonian Empire. A little bit later in his life, he works for the Persian Empire as well. 
And one day, while he was working for the Babylonian Empire, he gets this remarkable vision. We don't know how it came to him, but it did. And what he sees in this vision is an unveiling of political horror. First, he sees a ram. And this ram just goes on rampage. The ram is full of rage and begins to rampage across a map of the ancient Near East, from Persia to Mesopotamia to, uh, to, to uh, Canaan to all across the ancient Near East. And nothing can stand before this ram. Verse 4 says, And there was no one who could rescue from the ram's power. However, right at the moment when the ram seems to destroy everything in its wake, out of nowhere, up pops a, wait for it, a goat. And this goat, don't know how, but the goat can fly, which is kind of cool. The goat flies from the west and just slams into the ram and defeats the ram. Verse 7, the goat, so to speak, replaces the ram. The, verse 7 says, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. But then, once again, right when the, you know, super flying goat is at the apex of his power, right then when it seems like he's indestructible, his horn is broken, a symbol of his strength. His horn is broken, and four horns take its place. Now, everybody, are you confused? Well, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's all symbolic. And we get the symbols in the second reading. I mean, here's the quick version. Uh, the ram and the goat and the horns, they all describe ancient imperial leaders. The ram is Persia, or Persia's king. The goat is Greece, Greek's king, Greece's king. And the horns that come from the goat are smaller, less powerful kings uh, who emerge after the Greek empire fractures. And Daniel is sitting here watching as these beasts of political power just collide with each other and they smash against each other and they dismantle each other and they kill each other. He's watching a cataclysm of war. But then it all gets very personal for Daniel. Because Daniel's Jewish. And right in the middle of it all, the people of Israel just get eaten alive. The first part of the vision is about big global politics. Persia rises, Persia falls. Uh, Greece rises, Greece fractures. But then... In the second part of the vision, it, the camera angle zeroes in on one leader. It's just, uh, this leader is described as a little horn. So that, that means he's part of the Greek uh, empire. And this leader, this, uh, this king, just brutalizes Israel, just brutalizes the people of God. Just look at the second reading in verse 20. And this is frightening. Verse 24. His power shall become great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints 
By his cunning shall he make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall be, become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's saying he's going to rise up against God himself. All right. Can you see why verse 27, Daniel is just sick and he's appalled? Oh, he's appalled. He's watching as his people are destroyed. But here's the thing, and it, I hesitate to say this, but, but it's even worse. Okay, I knew we were going to, everybody breathe. We'll get there in the end. How can it get worse? Well, remember, Daniel's an Israelite. And the people of Israel, rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, they understood themselves to have a very unique mission in the world. Uh, if you go back to the very origins of the people of Israel, uh, God promised Abraham, their first forefather, that God would bless all nations through Israel. And the idea, as the story of the Bible unfolds, is that somehow God is going to set this broken world right through the unfolding of Israel's story. There was a way in which the people of Israel were, were tasked with representing humanity to God and God to humanity. And they did that in many, many ways, but, but two ways are really important for this reading. First of all, the people of Israel were uh, to be stewards of truth. Uh, through Moses, God gave them the Torah, which uh, is the first five books of our Bible. And the idea was that God was going to speak through these texts and that Israel, that, uh, that Israel could hear God's word and it would bolster Israel, but also it was going to be a gift that Israel could give away to the nations around them. They were meant to be stewards of truth in the midst of a world full of lies. But then they also had something called a temple, often called the sanctuary in our reading. And the temple and the sanctuary was meant to be an embassy of heaven in the midst of earth. So that if you wanted to go and meet with God, whether you were an Israelite or not an Israelite, you could go to Jerusalem and you could go to the sanctuary and you could pray and heaven would hear your prayer. Israel had a big mission. Keep that in your mind and go back to the vision. Because this little horn, this brutalizing tyrant... When he goes after Israel, guess what he targets? Look at verse 11. He throws down the sanctuary. Verse 12. He throws truth to the ground. And Daniel knows what that means. It means that he's not just trying to destroy the people of Israel. He's trying to kill the mission of Israel. He's trying to impede the plan of God for the redemption of the world. And you've got to feel what this must have been like for Daniel. Daniel is watching, on the one hand, the death of his nation, but on the other hand, he's watching the death of history. He's watching the dismantling of this great plan for which he had given his life, that God was going to uh, mend this broken world. But now it appears, as Daniel is seeing this vision, that evil is systematically killing that plan. Can you feel how tragic this must have been for Daniel? Just pause here for a second. 
Emmanuel, there have been many times when it has looked like God might be an outdated hypothesis. And there have been many times where the circumstances of the world have looked so grim that it appears as if the people of God and their mission is just too weak to endure, too corrupt to make it, too compromised, too persecuted, maybe just too few. There have been many times where the facts on the ground suggest that the plan of God is a failed one. But I want you to know, Emmanuel, that the Bible anticipated those dark moments. And the Bible says to us, in those dark moments, even in those dark moments, and especially in those dark moments, the Bible calls the people of God to live as people of hope in the midst of a dark world. And I want to know how. Because when I read this from the vantage point of Daniel, it's not entirely obvious where that hope comes from. But then you get to read the passage a few more times. And let me give you three reasons for hope from this passage. This vision tells us that God is unexpectedly near. And number two, that God is decisively in control. And number three, that God will personally restore. And some of this is going to be subtle, so lean in. First of all, we find that God is unexpectedly near. Um, I've never been in the extremity of Daniel's experience, but I would think that if you're in Daniel's shoes, part of the fear and part of the dismay is a sense that maybe God's abandoned you. Uh, maybe you're cut off. If all of this is going on, maybe I've been cut off from God's concern. Maybe God's just not even there. Maybe he doesn't exist. Or maybe, and this isn't any better, maybe God is there and he just doesn't care. And if you're an Israelite living through the horrors of this vision, um, it's all that fear is intensified because if the sanctuary and the temple is out of commission, then the embassy with, to heaven is closed. And maybe there's no way to get to God. But look at verse 13. Right at the climax of the catastrophe, Daniel hears a voice. It's an unexpected voice. It's a voice of an angel. He overhears a conversation going not on the earth, but a conversation happening in heaven. And look at the words that he overhears. Verse 13, one angel says to another, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings? And it talks about the sanctuary. But stop, stop here. And look at those first two words. How long? Now, if you're an ancient Israelite like Daniel, the question, how long? That's going to be immediately recognizable. Why? Well, that's one of the main questions in the Israelite prayer book. We call it the Psalms. The Israelite prayers are full of complaints. Are your prayers full of complaints? Um, learn how to do it well using the Psalms. The Psalms are regularly saying things like, How long is this going to last, Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? That's Psalm 13. How long is, a, is a, a quintessential question of the Israelite 
spirituality of suffering. But now Daniel hears that very familiar question, but it is voiced from another source. It's not an Israelite looking at heaven and saying, how long? It's heaven looking at Israel and saying, how long? In other words, Daniel hears heaven itself taking up the question of Israel's suffering. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. It means that heaven itself, and by extension, God himself, is not cut off from the suffering of his people. Heaven is not hermetically sealed off from the tumult of this world. Heaven is not holding out the cries of God's people at arm's distance. Heaven is saying this suffering penetrates the very throne room of God. And in other words, it means that even when the sanctuary is out of commission and there is no temple and there's no place to go to call out to God, nevertheless, God is attentive. God and God's angels are walking with Israel through their suffering. Emmanuel, what I'm about ready to say, I want you to remember, and if I could, if I could, if I could inscribe it and tattoo it upon our souls, I would. The presence of God is not canceled by catastrophe. And that conviction is the birthplace of hope. But there's more. Because the question, how long, gets an answer. And this is where we find that God is in decisive control. Verse 14, an angel answers and says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. No idea what the 2,300 evenings and mornings are. And as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of consensus. But I don't think that's the point. The point is that God has a very definite plan. Not all of it is open. Some of it's confidential. But God has a plan, and it appears that the suffering of Israel, the suffering of his people, is not the cancellation or the suspension of God's plan, but that it's part of it. Eventually, the sanctuary is going to be restored. And the idea is that if God's going to restore the temple and the sanctuary, then he's going to make sure that the rest of the big story of God's plan of redemption is going to get done as well. Put differently, it means that evil is not sovereign after all. God remains sovereign. And that's the truth that causes hope to begin to grow and mature. I can trust that God is in control even when it seems all falling apart. So God is unexpectedly near. Heaven hears our suffering. Number two, God is in decisive control, and you can trust him that his plan will endure in the midst of all the chaos. But then thirdly, we find out that God will personally restore. Look at the second reading, verse 25. This is really the key. Again, this is that wicked tyrant. He's right at the tight of his power, and it says this, and he shall even arise against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. Everybody say, by no human hand. That's right. That is the crescendo of the vision. 
And it says that the tyrant's going to be broken. But it's not going to be broken. The power of the tyrant's not going to be broken by just another empire. It, it won't even be by Israel taking up arms for themselves. The important thing to see is that there is no human solution to the deepest evil we face. And that verse means that God is promising to take personal responsibility to enter the story, to enter the narrative, and to throw down the deepest evil of this world. And this is crucial, and this is central to the message of Christianity. It's not just that God is unexpectedly near. That's true and essential. It's not just that God is in control. That's true. It's essential. But it's also that God promises to enter into the story, and God promises to be the final combatant that will rescue us. And that's the conviction that guarantees our hope. Let me try to say this completely differently. In Christianity, we see the full magnitude of God's goodness, not so much when everything around us is going well, because when everything around us is going well, if you're like Jim, it's really easy to trust in Jim when things are going great. We see the full magnitude of God's goodness when we look around and we realize we're in too deep to pull ourselves out. We see the full magnitude of God's goodness when we finally see that saving ourselves is no longer a viable option. We see the full magnitude of God's goodness when our urgent need surpasses human resources because that's the moment that we're ready to see the full magnitude of God's beauty because that's the moment when God personally shows up. And even as I say that, I can hear somebody say, what in the world? God personally showing up? That is crazy. What are you talking about? And if that's your question, thank you for asking such a great question. Here's my response. You're going to have to look at Jesus. And specifically Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus is God in person. Jesus is God showing up and personally entering the narrative. And when Jesus showed up, he battled evil. But he didn't battle evil with swords and a military. He could have done that. I'm pretty sure he was tempted to do that when he was in the wilderness with the devil. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, the devil said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. And that had to be tempting. And he could have taken that path. But had he taken that path, Jesus would have just been another participant in the evil he claimed to battle against. He would have just been the latest in a succession of beastly tyrants. No, that's, that, Jesus took a different path. Jesus battled evil by suffering under its weight. And in his story, he kind of summed up and repeated the story of Israel. Like the sanctuary, Jesus was desecrated. And like truth, Jesus was thrown down for a time. And like Israel, he was sentenced to death and he was executed. See, Emmanuel, our God is no stranger to catastrophe. He knows it from the inside. And you're going to have to remember that at a time in your life. He knows it from the inside. He knows the inside of a dark tomb. 
but he also knows what it's like not to stay there. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection, Emmanuel, was achieved by no human hand. And the resurrection of Jesus is the down payment guaranteeing all God's promises are to be trusted. Jesus certifies that God is unexpectedly near even in the darkness. And Jesus certifies that God is in decisive control even when it looks chaotic around us. And Jesus certifies that God personally restores. And that's why the people of Jesus must always be a people of hope. So, Emmanuel, I, I don't know what the future holds, and I'd be silly to predict. But there are a fair few scary narratives running around, aren't there? And I don't know what frightens you. But whatever it is that frightens you, Emmanuel, we must be a people who learn the art of hope. Like I said at the beginning, a people who hope in Jesus are going to be the people who can reflect his beauty well. But if our hope fails, then we will disfigure Jesus Christ. We can't do that. So when you're faced with the things that frighten you, and when you're, when you're looking on the news and you're flipping through your feed, and the, you begin to wonder, the chaos is overwhelming and I don't know the way forward. In those moments, what you need to do is you need to go back to Jesus. And you need to take the story of Jesus and overlay the story of Jesus across the things that frighten you. And, and allow Jesus to remind you that he's near and unexpectedly near. And that he's in decisive control even in the chaos. And that he has come to personally restore and he will not leave you alone. But he will take you through that his destiny will be your destiny if you belong to him and when your soul has been recalibrated to the hope that is in Jesus Christ then here's what I want you to do with your hope set on Jesus do what Daniel did at the end of the story you know what he did he got up and he went to work he got up and he went to work he engaged his world he went up and he actually went to work with with the empire he went to work engaging the world serving the world as God has served him, um, uh, blessing the world, discerning what is good and conforms with God and recognizing what does not conform to God and walking as a beacon and an ambassador of God in the midst of this broken world. And as we do that, as we serve others for the common good with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the Lord will gather up our story into his grand restoration. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.